Hey guys, this is Zach. And on today's show, we'll be talking to Jonas and David, the co-founders of UK-based indie mobile games development company, Fatfish Games. We'll be talking about how they got involved in video games development, the strategies they employ when addressing the mobile gaming market, and the challenges of running their own games company, and what lies ahead for the mobile gaming market. So today, the mobile gaming industry is bigger than ever with games such as Fortnite and PlayerUnknown on both Android and iOS platforms. But before we dive into talking about the mobile gaming market and its impact on indie game companies, I want to get to know you guys a little bit better. Can you both tell me a little bit about who you are, what it was like growing up for you guys, and what kind of influences you had in your life that pushed you towards video games development and entrepreneurship? Sure, yeah, so I'll, I'll go first. So, uh, from my side, yeah, I had a passion for games when I was younger, but I think it was more I enjoyed playing games. So I think my first computer was uh, an Amiga 500 uh, Plus, so I played that quite religiously, a lot of racing games. There was a game called Lotus Turbo Challenge on there that I really enjoyed. Um, I think for me it was sort of slightly different because I know uh, a lot of people have a passion and they want to work in games and build games from from a very early age. I enjoyed them, but I think for me it was actually I just wanted the con- the idea of running my own business and uh, that entrepreneurship side was probably more important for me. So when I was younger, I was trying to do all different sort of things to to, to, to make money, sort of doing car washing. I think randomly I set up a museum in the spare bedroom in one of my houses and tried to charge people and like my parents to come in and look around it. <laughs> and so a few people got a bit annoyed saying, I'm not paying to come and look around my own house. So, um, so yeah, for me, I think it was more that entrepreneurship business side of things. And then I guess when we gra- I graduated university um, and I, want- I didn't really want to work for someone, I had sort of that technical background. So I think it was a case of putting what I wanted to run my own business and be an entrepreneur and put that together with a sort of a, a passion for apps and games. And I guess that's where it sort of came together for me. Uh, similarly to David, I think, um, I think I'm about nine years older. So um, I, my influences with gaming were that, you know, the after the first sort of Atari, there was a wave of uh, next uh, generation consoles, um, ColecoVision and th- uh, things like that before the big names came along like Sega and Nintendo. So I grew up with all the first consoles coming out one after the other and the Game Boy. Uh, as well obviously and that as a child um, seeing that and it being a new thing versus just regular toys uh, was kind of magical Um, so sort of playing games as you go up and even to adulthood and then being able to sort of realize at some point that you can make these things uh, is also magical so uh, I think that was a great influence Uh, and obviously it was incorporated into popular culture and, and movies to grow up in the 80s and you see like um, uh, kids films where they have the consoles and video games and those kind of toys in them so it's all around you and you sort of can't escape it in the world we live in um, and then like as David said as well um, you know we went to university together and after that going into computer science uh, as we left obviously then we could use our skills to to, to make software make um, apps make games um, without having to sort of actually you know, get into video game consoles, you can make them for a mobile platform and it's a lot, the entry, the barrier to entry is a lot uh, easier there. So you, don't, you you can still get stuck right in. Um, and yeah, so from an entrepreneur point of view, I think, uh, yeah, like I said, I don't, didn't want to work for anyone. Obviously had a few jobs before uni, um, call centre, 
energy, like working for an energy company, um, doing odd running of computers around offices for people, tech support, kind of things you do, what a supermarket, shelf stacking. Um, but yeah, when we first web sort of the big web boom was there, I think my friend, myself and one of the other co-founders is not on the call. We were making websites for things like um, my the UK top 20 playlist with MB3s were big before Napster came along and stuff like uh, what football goals were available on the match of the day and just sort of putting them up when you were not really supposed to back in the day and putting adverts up and sort of trying to monetize, you know, back when everything was quite primitive. So that's always been in me uh, to sort of, you know, make things and, and monetize from them. Um, and but I, yeah. I think from you, you, you sort of maybe had more from a passion when you were younger to you would like to make games when you're growing up because I think one thing you told me is Anthony who Jonas has mentioned there is our creative director and one of our founders you you actually went to school together didn't you so were you saying that you used to design games in your technology lessons together yeah so um at school when we you we'd actually still go to the arcades still and put money into an arcade machine so we'd still talk about going to do that on the weekends because that's where you get access to really high performance games rather than your console which wouldn't be as powerful so you'd still be playing these games that were the next wave of well what's out in the arcades which one do you go to which which street fighter machine do you put your 20p in and have you completed it so we were talking about making our own games which we knew was possible but really difficult back then and we used to talk about what animations you put into these fighting games and we'd i'd sit with anthony we'd draw little you know sketches of it so the passion was always there from the beginning, and obviously the playing those games and sharing the cartridges with your friends was there. You'd go around your friend's house and play the next game, and you swap games, and you know, so you wouldn't have to pay fifty pound each for the for the for both games. So um, the passion for games and playing them and talking about them, buying magazines for them, was all there from the beginning. And now, obviously, it's it's less, less restricted. It's everywhere. You don't need magazines, and you talk to your friend directly. It's all online and shared, and that. So yeah, I think David, you're right. It, the passion for making games and playing them was was very heightened at school and yeah and i think something, <laughs> one thing you were saying about there which was quite funny is you were saying obviously you had a few sort of jobs before you did fat fish games and sort of our other company beforehand is i've never really had a proper job i've done <laughs> i've done sort of like summer jobs at university and school and things like that but basically when I, we graduated from university we formed our straight our first business sort of straight away then so i've never really gone and worked for someone for a longer period long period of time so yeah that's uh, is, is quite interesting and i don't know if i'd ever want to but um but yeah so that that's where um, myself and jonas yeah we went to university together we did the same degree uh, and then as soon as we graduated, that's when we formed our first, I guess, mobile app business uh, then, really. In a sense, obviously, um, having gone to university together and spent that time, you got to know each other quite well. Um, a lot of people that are looking to set up their own companies struggle because they're either looking for a co-founder and they haven't found somebody appropriate yet, or um, they are afraid to start something on their own. What was that process like in starting your own company for the first time? And I guess, David, you just mentioned that you'd never worked for anyone before. I suppose um, you'd have a completely different perspective to Jonas on that. Yeah, so I think it came about for us sort of Jonas quite organically I don't think we were sort of at university and it wasn't like oh we're gonna we've got an amazing idea for a product we're gonna be the next Google or, or something like that it wasn't that we had this product that we thought we want to take to market I think it was 
we've learned these software sort of these development skills on our course we don't want to work for anyone could actually we start to just you know go and sell these skills to to companies and actually start to get work in ourselves be it like desktop software or websites or or whatever so i think it was more of and at that time i guess because we were just coming out and still in that student lifestyle actually your financial requirements are relatively low so it was quite minimal risk for us and i guess with a software business as well there's not a lot of startup costs it's can you afford to keep yourself and can you have a computer with some software on it so i think it came about more like that that we actually just wanted to build software and we started just built it from there really and how did you guys go about getting your first clients on board at that time um so luckily from sort of people we knew we sort of had quite a lot of through friends and family and stuff like that just that sort of social network i guess we started to contact people um and luckily got a few projects at that sort of time um i think for me sort of personally during that time as well i we were doing work on this new sort of new startup business during the day and obviously we weren't making much money at all and so in the evening i worked in a call center in brighton uh to sort of bring bring a bit of money in but uh, yeah jonas i think it was just quite sort of so uh, contacting our network of people to see if anyone wanted anything made really wasn't it yeah i think at the beginning it was difficult you're always drawing upon the limited sort of resources you have it might be a small contact list and then when you, when you do get your foot in the door and, and make um, something for someone, even if it was a small piece of software or a bit of web development or whatever it is, um, once you build that rapport up and that relationship and that um, sort of respect and credibility level, then people do recommend you and then they introduce you to a friend who might want something be doing and so on. And, and, it, and it goes from there to the point where I think not too far in a few years in, we had, you know, we had, we had so much work coming in that we had to sort of manage uh, how many projects we could take on at any given time so um yeah i also remember those first early days <laughs> me and you were um just going through the yellow pages and ringing people and say do you want some software made <laughs> yeah <laughs> how did that work out uh, for that you guys really demoralizing. <laughs> um, yeah yeah uh, 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 <laughs> i think we sort of went looked through and i think we started at the a so accountants were the first people and saying do you want some software made sort of thinking we could compete with like Sage and QuickBooks and stuff like that. Um, and I think kindly one person said, oh, it might be interesting, ring back later when my manager's in. Um, mm. But yeah, that was quite demoralizing. Um, and I think, yeah, we've learned some sort of stuff for that of, yeah, if what, you know, qualify what you're doing and do the, <laughs> make sure you're contacting the right people. Yeah, that was a big lesson. I think doing that for a while, uh, cold calling almost to, to offer technology and some, I think maybe you've been framing it uh, as artificial intelligence because that's where we came from and that's what the original company was called. Was was so far ahead, so many, many years ahead of where people would understand technology, websites, and even AI because if you look now, it's kind of, it's trending now. So we're kind of like 14 years early or something or whatever. Um, so um, when you think about it that point of view, you know, you're, you might have struggled being a window cleaner, but if you're trying to tell, sell people a high high-level sort of AI and website and algorithms and, and tools, then we really were knocking on, on the wrong doors at the wrong time. Um, so mm, we were ahead we of our time, it. really, now, weren't we? If, we? if we're selling AI stuff now, we'd be laughing. Well, you would be laughing. <laughs> you are laughing if you are, and you know yeah. what you're doing. Um, but, yeah, at that time, it was quite a misunderstood sort of 
technology. So, um, yeah, it didn't work out particularly well. And since then, the the gaming um, industry has obviously exploded massively. Mm. It's always been quite a big thing, but it just seems to keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, and the mobile gaming industry just happened to explode in the last five to ten years. Mm. How have you guys managed to transition from building softwares um, into into gaming uh so i think at that time actually when we were doing that sort of startup work that sort of software we well in a way sort of very lucky is that people were still making apps for phones uh, little java apps i don't know if you ever remember them they sort of advertised them in back of magazines and there were subscription services to get them and things like that and we sort of looked at that and thought we could it's quite a new technology you don't need massive budgets to do it so we could start building stuff quite cheaply and easily there and through a contact um they knew a quite a big football site at the time called f365 manager and we worked with them Mm -hmm. on just pure revenue share deal to actually make a couple of uh, football games with them and they would take care of the marketing on their site and through their channels and we would make the game um Mm -hmm. so that's how we really i guess that was our first step into actually making our own games and mobile games um, and at the time, mobile apps were just <laughs> nothing really. They were not popular at all. Not many people use them. They're very much sort of small fry. Um, but yeah, that's how we sort of got our first break into to mobile games. Um, and then from from there, I guess we were in a position that when the iPhone and Android came out and apps sort of exploded, that we were in quite a good position to capitalize on that as well for sure and i assume you guys continued making uh, your own games or were they always funded by um clients so a mixture of both so uh, we then those little games that we made for f365 then we actually started to contact football clubs themselves and say look we've got these game engines would you like to make different versions of these games so um at the time we spoke to and did some versions of the games with everton football club and then off the back of that the football clubs quite like to look what each other's doing so from the back of that Mm -hmm. we actually did football games for for quite a few of the premier league clubs so at that time it was probably more of a mixture of making games for other people than making our our own uh, sort of ip and our own games for sure. And I know that you guys have um, Tiny Striker, which is one of your most successful games to date. How does that all fit into it? So, yeah. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll uh, be pointing to fast forward quite a few years <laughs> through that. So, we went through a whole phase of making our own games, making our own apps. So, a, a mixture of both. We then launched our own app, a non-game based app, and we did pretty well with that. Made made quite a good amount of money. So we then put all that into sort of the game side of the business, so Fatfish Games. And off the back of that, a creative director then started to make these small, tiny sports type of games. So they're very much pick-up-and-play sports games, football being one of the biggest ones of those. And that's how Tiny Striker was originally born, out of the the back of these small pick-up-and-play football games and sports games that, that our creative director, Anthony, came up with. Just to hit reverse on that a little bit, because we've obviously skipped a few years there and you guys have gone from making games for other companies and other clients to then building your own games. What was what was that transition like and what kind of strategies were you thinking of employing um, from a business point of view? I think, I think actually it was quite an ongoing theme there for a number of, it probably was years, we had meetings where it would say, 
you know, when can we do our own stuff? Um, you know, we'd like to make our own IP. We'd like to enjoy making our own vision, our own um, sort of designs and creativity. And we have meetings where we say, well, we can't do it yet because we, we you know, we need to we need to get these projects finished so we can pay the bills. And then we always have this little um, this sort of sheet that would say, if we get all these projects in, then we then have enough time and money to jump over here and do all these other things. Uh, and that was an ongoing theme, and it was a bit of a point of contention because, on one hand, uh, some of the business partners would say, well, you know, other three of us would say, well, actually, this is a good business. We 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 know we're good at this. Um, keep getting paid for contract work, and grow that business up as an agency. Well, on the other hand, I think particularly of Anthony being creative, he he wants to focus on doing something for himself that he have his own creative, put his own sort of creativity in. So I think that point came back um like going back a bit like you just said going back a little bit at the start of fatfish games where we utilized some of the profits from the app business the original app business started the second agency and just focused purely on games and got the, the team in for that purpose mm-hmm. and at that point then we started making our own stuff um the, the titles were for example were word cubes bubble heroes uh, tiny sports games, um, and that's where Tiny Striker eventually came out. So it was on the back of the original Tiny Striker one was the, the newest one, which is Tiny Striker World Football. So that's kind of how the transition occurred: was getting to the point where we had enough in the bank to sort of really jump across and sort of cut, lose some of the clients we were working with, um, and free some of those strings up because actually it's quite demanding working with a lot of clients because they they can call on you 24 hours a day and request things from you um, things beyond specification etc etc and then ask for another project so you're kind of committed to them in a way uh, we wanted to get away from that from many many reasons um, and otherwise you are kind of working for someone still and then eventually we made the transition over and sort of cut a lot of ties off mm-hmm. to, yeah, uh, it's quite, it's quite organic really wasn't it because like i said when we would go back to the start of the story you were saying earlier when when we first started, we were the work we were getting was from our social network. We didn't really, after that first failed attempt at doing cold calling, we didn't really do much of that. We didn't do much marketing. Is actually over. So we started that business in 2004. Probably over the next five or so years, we actually built up a really quite good agency of, and that was all built from word of mouth, from recommendation and repeat business. So we started to do work for someone we knew who would then recommend us to someone else. And so we were actually doing quite a lot of software uh, sort of development and projects for quite a few clients that we just built quite organically, like I said, through word Mm -hmm. of mouth. And that really then took off in 2008 when the iPhone came out because a lot of our work was for digital and marketing agencies in London. So obviously when the iPhone came out, what did everyone want? A mobile app. <laughs> and there wasn't many people doing it at the time. So we were in an ideal position where we were one of probably only mm-hmm. a few people that could actually do that. Um, so we could really take advantage of that. Yeah. So we built quite a, a, quite a nice business building mobile apps for clients and agencies and things like that and it's fun time some crazy things that people wanted made at the, at the time but it was quite good fun but like Jonah said is it's great and you're getting guaranteed money coming in but you do maybe have to sort of relinquish a <laughs> bit of that creative control and the control of your own destiny in a way because you, I guess you're yes you can add your creative input to a brief but at the end of the day you're delivering something for a client and I think we all wanted to 
actually build our own stuff and maybe a lot of people were making quite a lot of money from their own apps and games that may be something we wanted to look at more so we then looked to transition away from the client work which is difficult because you sort of almost got to start saying no to clients um, which are giving you guaranteed money to focus on our IP so we gradually tried to sort of do that and yeah we were we were not lucky but it was mm. We got into a good position where we did quite well from a non-game app. Actually, Jonas sort of was the original uh, brainwave of him that we launched, and that did really, really well. So actually, that probably in a few months gave us, two or three months probably gave us more rev- revenue than we generated for probably, probably the last 12 months, two years of client work. It, it did sort of that well. So it really put us in a position where we could actually just solely focus on our own IP and our own games. It's a great position to be in, to be able to concentrate on your own games and your own IP. Um, Oftentimes, I'm baffled by some of the games that I see that are coming out now, and there's just so much creativity floating about. I was wondering, how do you guys conceive ideas for your next game, and how does one go about being original in such a saturated market? Yeah, did you want to answer that, David? (laughs) Uh, so, yeah, I think what we sort of do now it is difficult, is we, we all come up, a lot of us in the team, we come up with loads of ideas for games quite regularly, and how each individual person comes up with those might be quite difficult, you might be driving along in the car, think actually, you see something, or driving along, and that sparks the idea of a game, you might be in the shower, or, or doing whatever. But, and we've got a, a, quite a big internal spreadsheet of ideas where everyone just lists their game ideas. And some of it might be just a spark of your, uh, of, in your day-to-day life. That'd be a great game. Or it could be you see a game, because we're all quite regularly playing games or downloading games off the App Store. It might be, oh, you see this game, but actually if you put this spin on it or tweak that slightly, you could make another game. So... Yeah, it's, there's various sources of inspiration, but ultimately we list all mm. those into, we sort of collate all that into a, a spreadsheet that we've got internally and shared, shared around the business. Uh, what's been your business strategy about releasing games and, and, and um, making games? So yeah, I guess, Jonas, you might chip in on this as well. Mm. I think we've gone through quite a, uh, well, a, quite a, a big change in how we view that. So when we first started... Um, and we'd done quite well from our previous apps and games that we launched and had quite a nice lot of money in the bank. Uh, we were focusing on building quite big, long development games uh, and say, okay, we need to build a game that's got a lot of depth, a lot of features, a lot of functionality. It's going to take six months to build, 12 months to build. And the problem with that in the mobile game space is it's, it's quite a risky business. You see the sort of very high success or, or or sort of failure so we've now sort of transitioned to a lot of quick win or sort of quick learn quickly or a sort of fail fast types of games so we'll build games very quickly now test if they work um if they do double down on them if not can them and go on to the next the next game yeah so i'm just yeah, elaborating on that a bit yeah so when we realize that you know spending 12 months on a on a title that we, we love and put all our emotion and creativity into if you're not testing that game early or soft launching it early or getting feedback on it and you know putting it out to users you can spend a good a chunk of your resource of a time money for, you know of the year 
making that and then it not sort of live up to expectations when you once you've launched it in terms of the metrics return of investment so really what you need to do now is for just for just for the survival of the business um and go and being efficient and productive with the team is make sure that your concepts tested early and, and usually you can do that with a sort of an mvp um within a week or two and just get it out there the main gameplay mechanic that's in there and see whether it has any legs and you normally can do that by just soft launching it in um, one territory and put a little bit of monetary advertising spend on it so you get some users through the door uh, measure the the data you have when they use it and if it's favorable so you have certain thresholds that you need to meet and if you if you meet those criteria then you can say well actually this looks like it's going to be a success and if that's correct then you just you, you use some polishes and tweaks to it and you carry on testing it and that's great and you can move forward with that idea and be confident that at the end of it you should have a product that will monetize well if it has the correct exposure and marketing behind it on the flip side of that which is 99 percent of the time is that the metrics don't stack up the users come in they don't come back the next day etc so the retention is quite poor if that's the case which it normally is then you can just uh, throw that in the bin and, and be confident that actually you know you, you, you love the idea but the number the data shows that it won't be successful um on the on the app store going um, down the line so you've just saved yourself probably tens of thousands of pounds of money and a lot of time when an opportunity cost uh when you could be doing something much more effective uh, instead yeah i think it's obviously it's quite a sensitive subject in sort of games that we sort of think and battle with is how much a game's a pure art form that exists just for the enjoyment of the game and making them versus how much are they basically a spreadsheet that mm -hmm. money in equals hopefully more money out um and yeah i know there's quite a lot of uh purists that really despise that way of thinking of of, of games um i guess it's trying to get that balance really is you're trying to make a fun enjoyable game um, that maybe you yourself would like enjoy playing because I think that's a big big part of it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's got to be a business. Um, and yeah, you've got, it's there to make money and uh, to fund the team and put food on the table. So I think yeah, you've got to very much keep that eye on that business side of things and really make sure that if you're going to put more effort into the game, it's going to warrant that that sort of investment really have you guys ever got found yourself in a position where you've got a product that you um are passionate about but it just isn't showing the kind of retention you guys would like to see and how would you guys how are you guys kind of convincing yourself to move on from that um i think well that that pretty much happens with every every game because i think most of everything we make we we wouldn't necessarily start or build it if we didn't have some sort of passion for that making that game so I think in every time it is a difficult decision. So whether you drop that or, or build it, and I think that's one of the toughest uh, decisions is actually if you spend, particularly the more time you spent on it, if you've actually spent a month, two months on this game, actually having the uh, courage to say, actually, it's not worth carrying on. It's going to take us another three months or, or whatever to get this to a, uh, a good point is actually having that courage to drop it. So I think that happens all the time because pretty much everything you make, even to start it, you've got some level, level of investment and passion on that product. For sure. And as you rightly stated out earlier, that you know it is about kind of making it financially viable for you and the company that you're running. But oftentimes you hear people say things like, you know, we'll take it to crowdfunding and raise a bunch of money for the game. Um, 
in that way and you know how realistic is it to count on crowdfunding and is this something that you guys have had experience with um so we've not really had any direct experience with that with the, from the game side we've done bits and pieces it from the apps side and that's worked quite well um i think the problem with the game side is for me personally and jonas might have a different opinion is sort of twofold one is what i've noticed on kickstarter and things like that game sort of mobile games dev don't ever really get that level of interest i think particularly because a lot of mobile games the sort of the big ones and people may be looking at are these very much these casual uh, freemium games uh, where they're free to play and they've got ads or in-app purchases in there they don't really lend themselves to crowdfunding particularly well um and mm-hmm. i think it's also secondly it's the same with the app store as well is you hear about the success stories of of uh, campaigns that work really well but for every one that works well there's probably a hundred or a thousand ones that have failed and I think what you've got to realize is it's not free money actually the campaigns that do work well there's a lot of work and a lot of investment in terms of running those campaigns for not for a day for probably um, several months before during and after the campaign so it's not easy uh and yeah mm-hmm. i've just not seen it really work well for the types of games mobile games that we're, we're working on yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, I've seen other people try and fail with, um, with, with crowdsourcing, crowdfunding. Um, oftentimes, they need a team of people to get those to work well, or an IP or brand, or a reboot of an existing title. So there's a, there's some sort of following already. So there's a lot of factors involved in it being successful, and, and also just a viral factor, and or any spend that's going to be pushing people towards that that page. So there's a lot of unknowns in there. I mean, unless that's what you do daily. And that's your business is crowd crowdfunding itself, then it could be difficult. Um, so yeah, I've seen a lot of people fail in that respect, and I think I've actually seen people have more success with physical products because people can have this tangible thing that they require if if, if you know solves a problem for them, and it's a physical product that gets made and it gets overfunded, say five hundred percent, and that's great for those people that do that on on a, for you know, manufacturing things that aren't games. I think then those people who use that as a profitable business exercise then go on and perhaps make games or do something else with that. But like David was saying, specifically for mobile games, I haven't seen anything really be that successful on the crowdfunding scene. I think I, I, I backed a game once, it was a, it was, but it wasn't just mobile, it was, it was Shadowgate. It was a game that was rebooted. So I knew it from a nostalgic point of view. I wanted to see it on, mo- on a mobile platform as well as others, so I put some money into it. But that's the only reason I would, would even have considered it. I think it works well for sort of a paid product as well or some sort of premium product because i guess people know what they're paying for you know what whatever sort of income you've generated how much money you've raised beforehand so you can sort of balance that out and work out the business model for that i think the problem with mobile games particularly freemium games is it's very unlikely that you're you're going to need a probably a significant number of downloads uh, and to hit a particular amount of metrics for the game to be successful after the, you've even asked for the money from the from the the, mm. the crowd funders, so my worry would that be is as we've said earlier, is there's a load of games that we make a prototype and make an MVP, launch them, see the metrics aren't great and can them. How would that work if you'd had like people put 50 grand in or 100 grand in terms of investing in that on a crowdfunding model, and you basically think actually to take this 
full product to market it's not going to be financially viable to us but we're sort of we owe something to the original crowdfunders so yeah for a freemium mobile game i just can't see how it would work maybe there are people sort of that have made it work and i know there are a couple of people that have done it just in my head i just can't see the logistics of it working for for sure and there's obviously there's some other bigger companies now that are getting into this space as well with with the whole freemium model um earlier on the beginning of the episode we i briefly mentioned Fortnite and player unknown how are these guys impacting uh, the market for you guys um I don't think, in terms of a way, I don't think it's sort of negative. I think those guys, are, what they're doing is so big, so massive. I Could we say, oh, are they cannibalizing and taking away our market share? I think the problem is is not really, because players will play multiple games. I don't think it would have to have an impact on us. In a way, maybe more of a positive side is actually the more people doing good game experience and getting people playing more and more mobile games, the better, really. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't really see it as a positive or negative. I guess we, I wish we were making as much money as them. But, um, but yeah, I don't see it sort of, I don't know, Jonas, if you think, I don't see it as a positive or, or negative, really. No, I, I don't think it's, I think if they weren't playing that, they'd be playing something else huge as well. So um, I don't think it's a bad thing. The fact that such things as Fortnite are cross-platform pretty much now, including mobile, um, means that more kids and other users will be on mobile as well to get their fix for that particular you know that game and play with their friends means that more people on the app store so i think it's just the way things are moving so yeah i don't think it's it's good or bad probably possibly more good you know more people spending spending money and that freemium model you know um helps people buy things in in other you know in other apps as well because you know once the strings are open a lot of users just tap and buy don't think too much about buying little sort of consumables in games yeah i think there's so, so much competition in the mobile games market now whether it's there there's just not them as the competition it's if they weren't there there'll be other uh, other competition there it's just such a competitive marketplace now with or without them so you're but you're always going to be battling against someone i guess yeah for sure and i guess that leads on to my next question is um when you guys create your products how do you go about marketing them in such a, in such a big market yeah, so that's probably the, one of the biggest challenges that uh, I think now is almost as big a problem and more challenging than actually making the game itself because you can have the best game in the world even with pretty good metrics, but if you can't get people to the game, then <laughs> you're sort of dead in the water. So mm. I think uh, I was reading an article on an industry website called Pocket Gamer pretty much now is if you launched an application, uh, sort of launched a game, and you're not a big brand like we we're saying like Fortnite or someone like that you would pretty much have no organic installs so no one would install the game so it all comes down to how can you market it so it really comes from can you get a featuring from the app store so they'll put it on the front and, and market it more for you that's sort of hit and miss there's no guarantee you can't pay for it you sort of can contact the app store give them all the information and then they might decide to do that so that's great if you get it, um, but not guaranteed. Obviously, you can do paid marketing, um, obviously, which costs money, um, and you need to make sure your, your game can support that, or you could work with people that have a lot of eyeballs, so influencers, brands, maybe in our case, football clubs. But again, they're going to want something out of the deal, 
um, probably money or rev share. So, yeah, it's it, it's really difficult. So we try to do some sort of combination, sort of of all those. But yeah, it's it's, it's very difficult. Um, yeah, I think I agree with everything you've said. Um, uh, I think it can go the other, other way, a bit extreme. I think some organisations or clients or IPs think that the marketing problem is is the biggest challenge and then they go all out for, for that part of it um, and then don't concentrate on the substance of what it is they're doing. So I think there needs to be a balance. Um, and I think from, from us, David, because we, you know, we're, we just come from an engineering background, I think we always focused on the product side rather than the other side of things. So um, I think in today's marketplace, you need to have both very well leveled and, and you know just spend as much time and money on both of them so i think that's where we're focusing now is making sure that our exposure discoverability and 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 the marketing for the methods we use for for that for products is is on par and uh, there's quite a few up and coming sort of mechanics we can use that we've been trying out and that are quite successful but obviously everyone catches up so then you have to sort of rethink otherwise you, you get lost in and the costs go up as well because you're you're not you're not doing something different. You everyone's doing exactly the same thing you're doing in terms of, of pushing those those users in. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's sort of also as well that comes back to what we were saying earlier in terms of particularly from the paid marketing side. Uh, there's a lot of tools out there and a lot of platforms where you can go in and sort of pay as you go. So like for, for Facebook or Twitter, you can go in there and say actually I want to do some marketing targeted the users and I just want to spend $50 or $100 or whatever. So that's great, really easy self-service tools. But then it comes more and more important then that actually the game, the metrics of the game are going to return that money. So if you pay, so Facebook can break it down and say, well, you can pay 50p or a pound to, per install for a user. So it cost me a pound to get a user in. Actually, I need to be making more than a pound back or they need to be sharing the game or giving some value back to me. Otherwise, you, you really haven't got a business. Absolutely, and I think um, a lot of people do make that mistake where they, you know, they, they put a lot of passion into their product and if it's not selling well, they'll keep blaming it on poor marketing and push hard. Um, and I guess it's, it's almost like a never-ending thing because it just sucks all your money out um, on various kind of platforms and you'll end up in the same place yeah and i think it's very easy to think and it'd be great if you could think oh, okay i've made a great game i'm just going to press go live on the app stores and it's going to be a success and that does happen and there have been sort of stories that that has happened um flappy bird being one of the bigger examples from that even though there's maybe some whispering that maybe something different was that or underhand or something different underneath was done to drive that but that seemed to be more mm. on the surface seems to be an organic success so it does happen but I guess it depends on what your structure is. So if your business has got seven or eight staff and some overheads and paying salaries, that's quite hard to, and investors as well, that's quite hard to justify that as your business model. <laughs> um, so sure. if you're a small one-man team, two-man team, maybe working from home, et cetera, maybe that's an easier sort of way to go and model to justify. But yeah, for a probably a bigger company than just saying, okay, we're going to make something and launch it and hope it takes off yeah probably wouldn't wouldn't work i've seen a lot of companies use various methods for um for the way they work and uh, especially in development processes i've seen a lot of people use scrum sprints and stand-ups um when they're working with big teams um to make sure they hit deadlines and get a 
great overview of progress. What kind of methods do you guys use internally and have you found anything that wasn't working for you? Um, so yeah, so we follow sort of a very much uh, 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 same methodologies like that. Um, so yeah, we try to break our projects down into sort of set sprints um, of work and try to get like an MVP out as quickly as possible. We have daily stand-ups to review progress and where we are in that particular sprint. Um, that works well. I think the only thing about it is it works as well as how strict you are on, ma on managing that process. So it's quite easy, both working with clients or on your own, to not stick to that. It's always easier to actually if I did one more thing, or actually if I tweak this, or if I had another day, or if I had another week, then you'd do more of it. So mm. I think that process works really well. Um, it purely it just comes down to making sure that you enforce that process uh, strictly, really. Yeah, I, th I think that it does. I think we were talking about there is sort of just discipline and um, and um, ensuring that you you communicate that down the line to your team. Um, when you liaise with sort of a client and there's a project, or even when it's your own project and you have your vision for it, and you agree in advance how long a sprint will take to fit all these items in, and there's a you know there's a defined timeline and estimate, sticking to that as much as possible. And then obviously, as you get near the end, uh, making compromises and adjusting it depending on where your progress is. And that's where the stand, the daily stand-ups come in really, really useful because you make that sort of very small communication at the beginning of the day. And it does clear up a lot of perhaps uh, assumptions, misconceptions or understanding between team members of where they are at each with certain items because they say, oh, well, you know, I hadn't realized this um, uh, or I could help you with that. And oh, well, yeah, that saved me a lot of time. So obviously, that's pretty ob obvious what I'm saying but that's the, the whole point of it um, is that it's really useful to have that on a daily basis and uh, to keep those, those sprints in check so um, yeah I think it's been great doing it yeah. and we use like a sprint tracking software web-based tool um, and that's really useful to, for everyone to see okay what needs to be done what's the deadline for this and just to, to sort of keep managing the project um, and I think the other thing as well with so, sort of agile uh, and just getting into that mindset is particularly for games that you're working on and even for client work is it's pretty much impossible in software to say a fully spec'd complete design that's never going to change uh, before you start the project as you're working on it is always changing. Um, you're always learning new things. You're also always seeing what works and what doesn't. So being a, sort of have that agile methodology where you can actually uh, improve and iterate as you go, as you get user feedback is, is really important. I guess for somebody that might be looking to start uh, going solo or creating their own company, what kind of advice would you give from a business perspective? Um, I guess there's sort of two sides to it, really. One is, I guess, is the practical implementation side of things, actually building the, uh, building the products. And I think what's great for me is, and what you've seen probably even since we graduated or started our business sort of 10, 15 years ago, is that how much access there is to amazing free tools. So, for example, Unity, which we use to build our games, as a, as a personal user, and I think even up to a certain uh, threshold, or if you're just using it on a personal level, it's free. So anyone really can go and start building games and put them onto their phone. Um, and you can do that from the app. There's tools you can do that from the app side as well. If you look at the cloud services from Google and Amazon, it's just amazing what technology there's available. So I guess there's no reason why people couldn't start uh, and going and building stuff easily. I guess more from the business side, I guess it's trying to work out what are you doing? Are you building your own IP? Are you getting client 
um, businesses, uh, sort of services or client development work. Yeah, and I guess it's just getting out there and getting that, re- getting something built, getting it launched, and getting that revenue in as as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think you need to have sort of an idea of what, what why you're getting into it, um, and have a motivation and a vision. Uh, so you can follow a path uh, rather than just oh um, you know I want to do some software and um, you know don't do what we did so just have a bit of a clear path of what you wanted to do at the beginning so that you don't sort of just lose your way and um, sort of walk, get sort of work sideways and don't uh, move forward you kind of um, ha- plan plan what you want to do out and then fit in the the steps you need to get there. And ideally, speak to someone who's who's done it before, uh, like you know, like us or other people that will come mentor and help and say, look, you're trying to get here. Here are the steps you need to take, and see if you can do them, and set yourself goals and targets along the way, and just make sure it's feasible for you to do it. Um, whether you need to have a side job to start off with, so that you can fund this going on, like David said, every all these tools are free. You could do them in the evening as part of, uh, extra to your your full time job if it's not what you already do. Or just um, even with ourselves, we've had apprenticeships uh, schemes and interns that can join us and um, they come in and, and develop within the company for, for free or cheap um, and they just learn on the job. And that's invaluable to them as well as it is to us because then they can, I'm not saying, you know, they want them to run run off and, you know, do their own thing. But sometimes that's their passion, that's their, their drive is they want to be entrepreneurs and sometimes they take their skills and use what they've learned within an organization, a larger one, and go off and do their own thing. And that's, we've seen that time in our time again before haven't we the other industries as well yeah. so and i think the other thing with the product sort of side of stuff is just what we touched on before is if you're wanting to launch a product-based business is really get it out there and get feedback as soon as possible um not necessarily just from friends and family actually proper real users and also of those users work out as quickly as possible would they actually pay for it because i guess there's, it's quite easy to maybe get a lot of people using something for free but actually working out if they're willing to pay for it as well. So being able to do that, learn quickly if it's a hit or, hit or not, rather than spending a year of your time and money trying to establish that before you show it off to anyone. Where, where do you guys see yourselves as Fatfish Games? Um, and where do you see the mobile gaming industry in five years from now? Yeah, uh, Jonas, do you want to, to go first? Uh, yeah, I've... I've got some, obviously everything's speculative, so you can have an idea of where things are moving. Um, I think we touched on it earlier that everything's becoming more cross-platform, cross-play with your friends. So a lot of games that are popular now are all uh, playable on mobile platform with your friends on their console. So that's the way things are going. And Nintendo Switch is portable, obviously. So that's a, sort of a, console, a portable console. So you've got that in line with these, these games. Everything's becoming open access, cross-play with your friends. Um, so that's great, reducing those barriers there. Um, so you, and you're seeing the quality and the, techn- the complexity of these mobile games increasing. So they're coming to be on par with some of the sort of home consoles. So some games that are on mobile are really, really getting as complex as ones you may see on Nintendo Switch, for example, which is great because that means you have access on mobile. So pe- the people getting games on the app stores are expecting a whole variety and range of games, whether it's the simple, simple ones uh, we may have done in the past to you know, mid-core and hardcore games and online multiplayer games as well. So that's great. Um, in terms of the technology, things have moved a long way since the Nokias and the, the first iPhone. So we're seeing a lot more sort of the next generation technology. So VR and, uh, and AR, augmented reality, uh, creeping up in, into games and apps. So I think that's where a lot of the things are moving. So multi- multiplayer online gaming, uh, cross-play and those t- VR and AR. I think that's where things are at the moment and that's where the things are growing. 
So yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, there's some bits I'm convinced probably will carry on growing. Is like you said, Jonas is you know, in terms of PvP. Uh, sort of online multiplayer, even like we've seen in Fortnite or Clash Royale, those sort of games, I think that will carry on growing. Um, I'm less convinced about VR and AR. Um, I think it's quite cool and some of the stuff's nice as tech demos, but I just can't see the main, a main at the moment for the foreseeable future, the short term anyway, enough mainstream audience sort of taking advantage of that or, or, or migrating to that to actually build a, hmm. a significant business off the back of it. I think one of the things about mobile apps and the iPhone became so popular and uh, so so lucrative is actually there was hundreds of millions of people with they had these devices on their, on them. They could play them on the train, they could play them on the commute and it's easy access to the games. Um I don't don't see that with VR and AR at the moment. Um so yeah, I think that's where I think where the sort of the technology space is going. Um, I guess in terms of from our side, yeah, I think we've got more sort of stuff that we're doing with Tiny Striker. We're looking to do partnerships with uh, various um, different brands of what we could do more with Tiny Striker. So earlier this year, we did a deal to do a La Liga, the Spanish Football League version of the game. Um, so we'd mm-hmm. like to do more things like that. Um, we're also keen to maybe look into China as well, because there's a massive growing uh, football area. Um, and then, yeah, we've got some other ideas for new games in, in that space, in that sort of sports and, and football space as well. That's excellent. Yeah. Sorry, did you want to add something to that? Uh, no, I just I kind of agree with what David's saying about AR and VR. It's that fact that when smartphones uh, came about and became popular, the, the access was directly there. You, everyone just pick up the device and use it. It's touchscreen and it was there. There was no, there was no barrier other than having that, that device. And you don't have to sort of wear things and, and do silly things and look around with it. And you just have it in your hand like you did with the original old phones. So um, I kind of agree with that. But in five years' time, maybe we'll get to the point where some of those technologies will look a bit more seamless and easy to access. Um, I, I don't personally want that to happen, but I think it will happen where there'll be wearable tech that'll be maybe built in or easier to use and have more experiential bonuses to using them i don't know but i think that's where it's going i think if you could do the vr stuff if you could get like a standalone headset with good battery life and good quality that was reasonably priced i reckon you could do Mm. some really cool immersive games and worlds and you could be sat on your sofa and forget you've spent like four hours or five hours in this world i Mm. think is that um is that something you think would get implemented into smartphones as well? Then? So at the moment, obviously, there already is. Obviously, you can get your smartphone, you can put it into, slide it into uh, the VR device. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, you need to obviously have the smartphone, then you've got the battery life of that, etc. I, I would like it, actually, that I did, wasn't reliant on having to plug my smartphone in. I would like quite a nice standalone piece of hardware that I can use independently, relatively well-priced. Um, my thing is, it's just a massive barrier to entry thing. I can't, <laughs> I'm so sort of lazy, can't be bothered to even work with, you know, set up or use and turn on a console. So, <laughs> let alone setting up anything to do with VR. So, that's why I like mobile, it's just bam, it's on. You can just, when you're watching the TV, you could decide play uh, as well. So, yeah, I think just that entry and that ease of doing stuff on mobile games is such a, uh, a bonus and so, so nice. Um, even though I think you could do some really, really cool stuff in VR, I just think I can't see it getting to that mm. mainstream level. Maybe I think it will at some point, but I don't know. It's not going to be like within the next twelve months, say. 
Yeah, I kind of agree with the, the, the sort of the, the questions you're raising there and your sort of think where you're concerned with the challenges with it are, I think, the generational. So I think going forward a generational so, I think the, it will become more normal to have this this hardware or however, whatever there is for it to be normal where you kind of wear it or whatever have it so that it'd be the thing you do. At the moment, it would be the case that, well, it's fine for a 60-year-old to have an iPhone for example, um, or older even, and they'll still be able to use it, and it'd be kind of a normal concept to them. But I think as you go forward in generations, it'll, just, it'll be, you know, things will, will change. Yeah, I think some of the stuff that uh, Google did with the Google Cardboard, so a really cheap, uh, collapsible and constructible sort of VR headset, you, so you had to put your smartphone into it, uh, I thought was really cool. Um, and I think they could do, do way more with that in terms of actually a barrier sort of trying to get that barrier to entry and get that people's first experience of VR so I had one I showed a few of my friends and family who would never ever buy a VR headset and they're like oh my god this is amazing this is great whether we've been there buy one I don't know but at least it's getting them into that sort mm. of experience and stuff like that so that might be quite an interesting way if they did more with that yeah for sure. I know I said that was my last question, but I do have one last yeah. one that I totally forgot about. Um, and it's when you mentioned the Nintendo Switch. I'm a huge Nintendo Switch fan myself. Um, is that something that you guys as, as, as developers for mobile games, um, is that something that you guys find attractive as a as a console to maybe potentially port your games or develop games for that? Is that an easy step to make? Um, so I think with the Unity platform, yes, it well, it's not easy, but it's a, definitely a possible step we could do. Um, I think for us, we'd always just weigh it up. Is actually does the claim we're making lend itself to that platform? I think some of the sports stuff probably does. And then just what's the business? What's the return on, on doing that? So uh, a lot of the games that we do, obviously like a freemium games that work well on mobile, they might not necessarily, as a business model, transition as well to other platforms. Um, but not something we definitely say no to. I guess we just have to sort of weigh it up from a business point of view. Yeah, I think from not from myself and you, David, but I think Anthony, particularly the creative director, I think he would he would love to do that because <laughs> it would mean that um, his ideas and games would go to uh, actual uh, consoles. And I think yes, the barrier to entry now is a lot lower because uh, mm. like using Unity to cross publish to Switch is available, obviously, and I think they're publishing criteria is a little bit less strict than the other consoles so like uh, PlayStation and Xbox I think it's, it's less expensive and also the it's not as difficult to, to get it to get it published so I think that's definitely a next step possibly depending on the game yeah definitely that's awesome well I look forward to seeing what you guys do in the future and thank you guys for being on the show brilliant thanks a lot brilliant excellent Great. if anybody wants to get in touch with you guys how would they go about that and if they want to find out more about the stuff you guys have done where can they find that yeah so probably either go sort of the fatfishgames.com website uh, also the same on twitter and facebook or if you actually search in the app stores for fatfish games you'll list, see a list of all our titles on any of those and on the website as well we've got a contact form so if anyone's uh, got any questions or looking to get into the games industry we're always open to hearing from people so give us a shout sadly that's all we've got time for today but if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to share it and i'll catch you on the next episode